Well, hello, Mr. Henderson. How are you? Well, hello, Jenny. I'm all right. How are you doing? I am good. We are back. Uh, we've taken a little hiatus. I'd like to say it's because of <laughs> just the holidays, but I feel like it's just life in general. But we're back with our last podcast of the year, um, closing out 2020. And um, we first need to acknowledge the elephant in the room. You were not there. Um, what the heck? Where were you <laughs> during this recording? <laughs> you know how there's FOMO, fear of missing out? This wasn't that. This was just Mo. This was just missing out. So um, <laughs> I was trying very hard to be part of this conversation because it's a really interesting conversation that I very much wanted to contribute to. And um, the I don't know what happened. I have a new computer and the stupid podcasting recording software would let me hear what you guys were talking about. And I, it just wasn't picking up my microphone. And so I was like the cat scratching on the screen door, begging to be let in, but, but no dice, no <laughs> dice. But this was such a, you know, and I've listened to the episode, you know, you're recording and you did a fantastic job, of course. And it was a, I think everyone will hear, this was a really great conversation and I was excited for someone to have it because, um, you know, some time ago I was talking to Juan about projects and he was explaining to me about this whole process that they use on his projects with Banner to identify areas of, of risk in a project. And that means like kind of these assumptions where, where somebody sort of knows there, there's something we don't know about and they just sort of maybe typically guess some money at it and that's 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 the extent of it and then inevitably a lot of these things will jump up to to cause delays and or cost overruns in the project and banner has started to develop um this really elegant process to to turn that on its head and um, dig into the risk and a big part of that is actually how they formulate and and kind of run their teams. It's it's really interesting. Yeah, I it was exciting to me to talk with them. I also was especially excited to have an outside guest star come into the podcast. It's the first time that we've opened uh, opened the door to have an outside guest, and I think we will, based on how um, how great the conversation was with Kyle, I think that we would definitely want to um, do that in the future. So it was, he was a great person to kick that off. So hopefully everybody enjoys this. No kidding. It, you know, not to mention that he had the best audio of any of you. So yeah, I, don't know. I, know. I need to up my game for uh, sure. Maybe, yeah, that might be on our, on our uh, you know, our Christmas <laughs> list for 2021 is uh, legit microphones or something. Yeah, but, yep. <laughs> You know, there's one thing that I thought when I was listening to this that I thought maybe would be worthy of just a little bit of explanation before we kick this off, and that is strengths finders. So mm -hmm. this was this is a I don't know what would you call it, Jenny? Personality rating system? Is yeah, that, right? that feels like I, mean, not right. I feel like the person who invented it would say something more elaborate, but I feel like at the end it's a it's a it's a personality test to identify. Identify what your what your strengths are and how you um, who you are as an individual. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And so I know there's quite a few folks at Boulder Associates that haven't taken this. And I think that's a shame, you know, sort of note to self is I'm going to get the rest of the San Francisco office done up on this here, hopefully, if uh, 21, 2021 isn't a total dumpster fire. <laughs> 
but it, it, you take this questionnaire and it gives you back your top five strengths. I think in their theory, there are 34 kind of fundamental things that people can be good at, and we're not all good at all of them. And so you take this thing and they tell you the top five and their whole approach is you should lean into those. If you want to be successful mm -hmm. in life, lean into the things you're good at with each strength is something that they call the kryptonite, right? So everything you're good at has a, has a, a dark side, has a downside, right? So one of my strengths is input. I think it's my top strength, which is, man, I just love to go and just gather information just for the sheer joy of knowing stuff. And <laughs> the kryptonite on that is, you know, I get bored really easily. I have this craving for variety and newness. And sometimes you have to hunker down and just sort of stay with something for a while. And you know what, that can be really tough for me. Mm -hmm. So being able to acknowledge these things, what you're good at, but also kind of the, the, the way it might cut the other way is really helpful. And that's, and that's what Strength Finders is about, just as a quick intro to, to folks who haven't experienced it. Um, well, we hope everybody enjoys listening to Kyle and Juan share stories about the amazing work that they're doing on their projects with Banner Health and supporting um, the way that their teams work together. Kyle, you want to introduce yourself and your role at Banner? Sure, thank you. My name is Kyle Makrowski, Senior Project Executive, like she said, with Banner Health. I oversee the Capital Design and Construction Group that manages uh, work throughout the Western Division, which includes Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, Nevada, and California. Awesome. Juan, you want to introduce yourself for folks that might not know you at BA? Sure. Juan Ramos. I'm a project architect and senior associate. I've been with BA now for just a little over 15 years. Uh, in those 15 years, I spent uh, about five in Orange County, but the bulk of my time in Boulder, and uh, have been doing banner work for the better part of, uh, I think, about six years now. And I've enjoyed sort of working with Kyle and, and doing the thing that we're doing now, these phase zeros and some of the collaborative projects experiences have been fantastic. So I'm excited to talk about them. So Kyle, maybe do you want to kick this off and talk with, um, talk with us about what is phase zero on a banner health project? That's a great place to start because uh, we still haven't figured out exactly what phase zero is. <laughs> uh, I, I think the one, a, a quick, history lesson might be worthwhile because it's been a journey mm -hmm. to get to where we are. Um, we we started this probably a little over four years ago, trying to define ultimately a way to make a process out of something that normally isn't done within our industry. And that's really truly getting the right people involved from the right firms involved, the right internal folks involved in order to craft a project request before that budget is set. Uh, for many, many years, we either used an internal estimating budgeting system that is reflective on past projects and then maybe a location factor or some other way uh, to go and ask senior leadership within the system for funding. And then we get that funding and we say, okay, here's, here's the project. You're going to go do X and here's your budget. And of course, 99 out of 100 times, the people who then come aboard on the project say, you can't do that. You don't have enough money or you have too much scope or both. And so after suffering through that so many times, we, we thought maybe there's a better way to help formulate the budget. And so the, the idea of this phase zero came about where if we could get some seed money or some early dollars allocated to a potential project, not a firmed, uh, approved, formalized project, but just 
really to go kick the tires and do some early work, then we could have a project team that may or may not continue on the project, but at least we have relevant, intelligent professionals combining forces to articulate to some level of degree, here's the outcome that you're going to receive if you invest this amount of money. So that really was the impetus. And of course, some finance people jumped on board with us early because they liked the increased level of certainty. If we say it's going to cost this much, it's going to cost this much. It's not going to cost this much plus a whole bunch more money once we actually get into the project. And they appreciate that higher degree of certainty. So they were able to give us some dollars to get started with this on a small project. And and one was instrumental in, in one of those very first projects we did. And uh, it, it was quite the, the education for all of us. We, we had a small imaging replacement project that they invested a few dollars in and they being banners. So we invested some money and we actually hired and paid our architect and our contractor and a few subs and some engineers in order to help formulate basically a project plan. Do you, re- you remember that one, Juan? Because it was quite a while ago. <laughs> it was a while ago, but it, it sticks in my memory quite well. Um, I, I remember one of the, the things that, that was clear in my mind was that a lot of these projects that were not proceeding were, were a result of sort of hallway conversations where a clinician, a director of a department was asking for a project and then that process was broken and, and this was a way to try and fix that process. And the idea of engaging folks early um, was extremely appealing because I could see where the flaws were, where people weren't asking the right questions early and um, scope was poorly defined as projects were budgeted. So this seemed like a very obvious way to fix that. Is the goal that the, the teams that are involved in this initial phase zero project are, are also, the, I assume, the teams that then lead into the project to actually execute on the project? Not always. Um, And I say not always because sometimes we could go a year or two. Uh, We just Mm -hmm. had one that that started up literally a couple days ago that we did this effort on almost two years ago. Um, And so, of course, the people who are involved in that, the firms still exist for sure, but the people at those firms are no longer with those firms for the most part. So it makes no sense to continue uh, with that same firm. Now, I, I, I do understand that Boulder, just like every other architect and contractor and and company says you have strong bench strength, and I believe that. Mm-hmm. But the power, uh, and, and we struggle with it too, right? Lessons learned across project managers and, and everyone else involved in our industry, it, it's still kind of a unicorn that we're all chasing. So, not always. It would be fantastic if we could continue, and sometimes we do, because uh, there's a, a clear path. We go through this effort, we go to the powers that be to get the actual project funded, and then we move right into actually executing on the project. And when that happens, it's a very high likelihood that the people and the firms involved in this phase zero will continue. Um, But it also helps in the product knowing that you may or may not continue on the project, uh, which means your peers or someone else is going to get your product. So if your product is solid and we can hand it off to another firm or another couple of firms, then the same is most likely going to happen down the road where someone involved in this phase zero uh, may then turn around and hand it over to you. So mm-hmm. it helps create somewhat of a, a community knowing that if we do well here, even if we don't get it, someone else may, we're helping to set the expectation of when we receive somebody else's work product from a phase zero. 
I think we were also very intentional to, to make sure that we're documenting the process, assuming that it could be handed over. So it was transparent to anyone who would pick it up, what we were trying to do in terms of defining scope, schedule, and budget. And then one of the important things, I think one of the things that Todd was interested in is, is making sure that we're also identifying risk. There's value in doing that early. And then if, if we proceed on the project or not, that information can be shared um, downstream and upstream. That's, that's very valuable. I think it's important, one, that we, we speak a couple elements of what phase zero is and what it's not. Um, I, I think a lot of people jump to, oh, so you're, you're basically going through a, a hefty level of design and then saying, here's our firm scope, schedule, and budget. And there are times when we do that, but not, not often because we usually don't have enough time nor enough money to go that far. And it really doesn't help us as a system make a decision on whether or not to proceed with a project. So what we ultimately do is, is the way I try to describe it to people is at the end of phase zero, what we're agreeing to is that some level of outcome. So let's just pick one, for example, a, a 20,000 square foot cancer center edition uh, will be in place. Will it be 18,000 or 22,000 square feet? Something like that. But it's going to deliver the following, right? It's going to be able to meet these programmatic requirements. Here's the budget that we are confident we could deliver those programmatic requirements for. And here's the time frame. So if you think about it, we're going to say we're going to do a, a $10 million cancer center. It's going to take us 16 months. And it's going to be able, at the, when it opens, it's going to serve this many people and have this kind of capacity and X and, and Y. And now how many actual seats will it have? We're not sure. How many bathrooms will it have? We're not sure. How many, you know, will it be this or that? You know, how many square feet of carpet and how many chairs uh, in the conference rooms? All of that are, those are problems that'll solve during the actual project. Hmm. But for right now, we're simply agreeing that, and sometimes it's, it's a little bit of a wing of a prayer going, yeah, we could do that. I don't know how, but I'm pretty confident we can do that. And if we can get the team to agree that that's enough, then we often don't go past concept or 50% SDs if we were to compare it to a typical design process. So explain to me, like at the end of phase zero, what do you as an owner have in hand? Like, is it a series of documents and, and what do those look like? Like, what are, what, are, what does the end of a phase zero look like for you? It's really just a couple pages. Um, there's there's backup information for sure from the investigations and due diligence by all the various firms, but really it comes down to we need to be able to confidently present and support the pro forma that's put together internally, the business plan. So I have a, a, a sketch, and sometimes it's a hand sketch, but nobody really does it anymore. So it's some sort of some sort <laughs> of <off> start. <laughs> right. It's it's some sort of drawing. Um, and a, a number, of course, a cost for the total project. So it's not just design fee and contractor. Of course, it brings into FF&E and it brings into our internal and permitting and so forth. So we put together a comprehensive budget and then a time frame. Hmm. And that's really all that the end product is, is those three things. Because if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, when we look at a a project within an owner's realm, we're looking at the ROI, which means what's our initial investment, what's the time to pay back, and what's the stuff we're going to get in order to produce that payback, right? So are we going to get 
two extra ED visits or 2,000 extra ED visits, right? There has to be some sort of payback here. So really what we're trying to do is get to, hey, if we buy this thing for this much money, here's what we're going to make off of it short and long term. That's ultimately what we're trying to get to. Yeah. So it, it does vary um, the, the actual work product that we get. But what I have to do is distill it down to really those three basic components. When Juan and I were talking ahead of this episode and he was telling me that, you know, the success of phase zero is contingent on the success of the team and the success of how you guys integrate the team. So I'm hoping that you guys might be able to talk to talk to our listeners about how you set up your these strong teams that are able to deliver these successful phase zeros. Yeah, Jenny, I, I can I can at least take take my my stab at that because I think that a strong phase zero is really about, you know, we, we talk about sort of creating this understanding of scope and budget. In order to do that, it, it requires a couple things. One, you have to be able to be a clear communicator so people understand what is the scope that we're trying to do here. Can everyone agree to that as the scope of work that's being asked? Um, and then there's a great deal of, of trust that has to be established, and that takes some work. You can't just sort of like fall out of bed and say, now we trust each other, it's gonna work great. Um, it comes through in communication and clear communication and, and sort of working hard to get a shared understanding. Um, because if you if you can get people to trust each other when you do these phase zeros, you can also get people to challenge assumptions, ask good questions and not be able to afraid, uh, not be afraid to sort of say, yeah, I think there's a risk in this project not working for A, B and C reasons, right? So we work hard right away to establish openness in communication uh, and clarity and scope of work so people can always point back to those things. Maybe maybe to elaborate on that, so you your teams show up, say, day one of phase zero. Do you do, you know, the, the typical things that we might hear, like the icebreakers, or I, I mean, I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit about strengths finders that you that you bring into the bring into these teams but what does it look like like on that first day like how do you because I, I hear what you're saying about how to foster this culture but how does what does that actually look like for you guys like how do you how do you bring that to fruition well there's a couple different a couple different first days and actually they're they're all unique because mm -hmm. what we found is it you can't accomplish this on the pure project alone um the elements that Juan's talking about um, I mean, you can, you can get a group of people together and we can all agree that we're going to trust each other and that we're going to leave everything in the room and nothing's going to go with us. And we're going to, mm -hmm. um, tell it like it is. And everyone's seen those. And, and yeah. we've all seen the jobs that have the lean posters on the wall that you haven't looked at since day one. So <laughs> we're trying to get past the artificial piece of just agreeing that trust is important and actually talk about what does trust actually mean, right? If I'm going to trust you and you're going to trust me, how do we know it? How do we see it? How do we feel it? And so it's very, very difficult to do that just on the project alone. A um, couple things. And Juan was also helpful and in, in instrumental to, to help us start um, what what we ultimately called the banners DOPs because we're not that original. Um, so every, every month or two, we've been getting together now for a few years. Um, we get all of our, we, we invite, not all, but we invite all of the architects and contractors and engineers who work on banner projects in our division. And we get on a call and we talk about typical project issues. 
we've we've discussed things like the risk log. We've discussed things about how do you handle OAC meetings? How do you drive them? How do you run them? We've talked this last time around was decision making. What, how, how do you make decisions on projects and who makes decisions and when is it okay to revisit a decision and when do you yell at people who want to revisit a decision? And so it's, it's fascinating conversation. If you think about it, you're taking people who normally compete with each other being multiple architects and contractors, and we're, we're taking the people who are doing the work and having these conversations. And so what's amazing is number one, human beings love to share. And so what we find in these is once people get talking, they talk a lot, which is great because we're getting crosstalk amongst um, our own projects. And so selfishly from a banner perspective, right? My team who manages all these projects are getting visibility into other companies that they normally don't work with and other projects that as much as we try to share, especially in this, this time of working from home and remote and such, the, the opportunities to share quote unquote best practices, really just share what we're doing. Um, and it's not who's working on what projects. That's typically how it gets shared. What we do in these COPs is we share, how are you actually executing the work? How are you executing the design phase? How are you executing, right? So it's breaking it down into little elements of our normal day-to-day -day lives and talking about how we're doing those. And so that helps set a tone for a culture of our projects. And then we move obviously the strength finders piece and there's a bunch of different ways to make that happen some companies that we work with have taken it to you know the 99th level and others are still poking around at it but really what what it hap what helps is establish the idea of vulnerability right uh there have been a few proposals you guys included where you articulate and you say you know i'm proposing this person here because these are their strengths and what that means is that they're super energetic about new ideas and, and kicking tires and trying a bunch of things. And then eventually that wears out and we need to bring this person to the table because their strengths lend them to good, solid, I say, project management, right? They're going to put bookends on the design phase. They're going to put timeouts. They're going to say, this is as far as we can go. And they're going to hold people accountable to actually get things done and stop the ideas from spinning. And so both have super value at some point during the project, but it's that self-awareness that comes to the table that then encourages others to be just as self-aware or be interested in that self-awareness. So that's where the strength finders piece comes in. And if you try to do all this on just a project, you'll be somewhat successful. But what we found is by doing this over and over and over, these COPs, and then also talking about the strength finders piece and trying to bring it up in just regular conversation, that helps set the tone so when we do a project most of the time people who come to the table have experienced one or both of these things somewhere else that now it's just oh let's apply it to a project fantastic and we start at a much different level with the phase zero piece again it really comes down to trust vulnerability being able to raise your hand ask questions say i don't know stuff that we say we should be doing but without a good strong foundational culture it's really hard to actually do in practice. I, um, I, I love the idea that you talk about this vulnerability of kind of allowing people to, to, to share their strengths and use that in a way in, is a, as a mechanism to help show that, you know, these are the things that I'm good at and all, because it also obviously exposes the things that people might not, where they might not have strengths or where they might be able to play to their strengths more. And I, I, I think when, 
you know, uh, Juan and I were having this conversation the other day. I think when we had that, did the exercise with you as a leadership group a handful of years ago um, and, and did our strengths. And it was, you know, the first time that I had taken that and you look at it and you, you see your strengths and it was, it made certain things about like what I felt is it made certain things about myself so clear, like why I enjoyed doing certain things or why I didn't enjoy doing certain things based on, based on where my strengths were. And I think when we went back to, you know, we were together as a group and when we went back to our office and my partners in that office and I kind of laid out our strengths on the table and we saw where, where we had, um, where we didn't have, you know, the same strengths or where some of our strengths kind of overlapped. And it, again, it provided this nice clarity around why, how we might be able to better function as a unit in managing the office and trying to play to our strengths. And I think that that's something that for us has been really successful and was really eye-opening for me because again, it's not about saying that one person can't do something or the other person isn't good at this. It's like, you're good at this. I'm good at this. Let's play to our strengths and use those in the way that we manage an office, manage staff, manage projects. It's very, um, it was, it was really eye-opening for me. So I can see, you know, this idea that you talk about using that in the context of your teams is really, um, is really powerful. It's amazing. Just the opportunity to have a, an owner, um, who has established that as a, as a means to doing work has created a culture um, that allows us to be open, to be vulnerable, to challenge ideas, to collaborate in a way that is unique, I think, to, to what we do on banner projects. And I think they're getting better results from it because um, this has been done enough times now that people are understanding that there's some expectations that um, you need to be Transparent if you can, talk about your strengths, um, lean into them when you can, and then have some awareness too. And, and when you're, you're, you're crypting out of your strengths is sort of getting in your way. Um, it, it allows a lot of experimentation and creativity to start kind of flowing within the projects as you figure out how to deliver each project um, in the way that's most appropriate for the specific project. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the what the goal is, is that going back to, the, to where we started the conversation around the certainty, right? We need a level of certainty that, especially in this day and age where, well, I've been in, in this industry for a long, long time. At no point did we ever, were we ever flush with money. So <laughs> people say, well, in this, in this current environment, capital is tight. It's always been tight, right? We've never had enough money to do everything we've wanted. So anyway, um, what, what we... Again, the finance folks, oh, what leadership really appreciate is when you actually can provide and deliver what you say you're going to deliver for the dollars and in the time frame you say you're going to deliver it. So really, the, the one of the foundational elements of an IPD project right, is try to find a way to increase the level of certainty on the stuff you're going to get, the time frame that you have for the dollars that you have. And so what we found is a little bit of investment up front goes a long way. Um, and we do spend a lot of time, like Juan mentioned, talking about risk. Uh, and we decide, you know, do you put dollars and effort and time towards mitigating that risk now? And just for a specific example, right, we, we have assumptions from time to time that the infrastructure, if we're doing a, a renovation project within an active hospital, and we make assumptions that infrastructure is adequate or we can tap into blah, blah, blah. And almost every single time somebody raises their hand and goes, that's a, that's a risky assumption. Let's mm -hmm. spend a few hours and actually go investigate that so we can take that risk off the table and quantify it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's huge. 
uh, yeah. because now instead of just estimating or putting a, a ballpark or a placeholder, we're being as a team selective on, okay, if we have, let's say we have a hundred hours to do this phase zero, where's the best time or the best areas to allocate that hundred hours of manpower? Where should we put it and what should we be looking at? What can we safely make assumptions on and what should we dig into? Cause it's just more risky. And when you do it as a group, that, that does go a long way. Yeah, we've been fighting the contractor's culture to, um, to just take a, a contingency and say, well, the risk is just in the contingency. We can say, well, let's, let's challenge that. You don't just have to have a blanket number. Let's talk about um, what that number represents. And they could say, well, we don't know how much um, new ductwork we need in the mechanical system. So, well, let's, let's do a sketch and let's, let's eliminate some of that uncertainty. And they say, well, we don't know if we need to replace the air handler. Like, well, let's go ask the facilities director. We can do that, and he'll tell us how old it is, and if there's any issues with it. Uh, if we need to upgrade the BAS. Let's let's talk about that right now, and we can start to mitigate risk, and you can start to eliminate contingency, and we can carry it instead as a more transparent risk. I also really love the um, the monthly calls that you have with with teams, and 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 again, like you said, people that compete against one another for your work, but you're taking that that competitive nature out of it because you're making it something where it's just all about the good of the projects, the good, you know, doing the work for, for you guys, making everybody successful and creating this really nice network of people that just want to help support, you know, your health system and its mission. And I, is that always, I mean, is there ever any challenges in that? Or do you find that just, you just brought amazing partners to the table and it all seems to work really well like does that does that process seem to consistently work well for you with those the the way that the teams kind of interact <laughs> i'm not that good at gambling um <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty intentional um mm -hmm. so in a, it, it, that those conversations are are confined to those who are working on projects with us or on the master list and have been vetted and so forth so mm -hmm. you know there's a pretty good certainty that we're going to get good participation but you know people come and go and and some of the stuff we talk about is not always safe and and it can be uh you know just personally it's tough to step into some of these conversations not everybody is as confident and outgoing as to say juan is <laughs> and uh so they're, they're gonna it, more like me and in the way my strength makeup is is i join a meeting i usually am quiet for a good chunk of it until i let everyone else talk and then then i speak up and have something to say and so there's a lot of folks like that right trying to get those people to engage early and often in the conversations uh, it, it can take time. And so, it, you know, you could go like most projects, you can go six to nine months before you really figure out how to work with somebody. And we're mm -hmm. trying to accelerate that. So the only other thing that, that we do and try to open it up to the broader community is I'm also the, the founder of our nonprofit Ripple Intent. And so we're, we've been trying to make work better in our industry for almost a decade now. And so that's open to anyone and everyone within the industry. And so we give people an opportunity in those conversations through that organization to really practice this stuff in a safe environment that's not project dependent. There's very little risk besides kind of having some fun and, and looking silly in front of your peers and your competitors. But really, right, when, when do you have a chance to really walk into and talk about some of the things we're talking about when you don't have the clock ticking? Right. I remember I did a, a very large, uh, a brand new $200 million cancer center building in, in Oregon. And we literally asked the 
director, the executive director of the cancer program, we need about three months to build the team before we can start building your building. And we got about three weeks into that. And then, of course, the questions came. Where's the design? Where are the drawings? We need something to react to. We need to show people progress. And I'm like, we can't design something until we actually build a team. And we could, but you're not going to get the best product and so, or the best experience. And so that's what we found is by, by seeding the community and working in the, the design construction community, offering these types of things, giving people that chance to be safe and experiment and try and play, then we go into these other conversations and ultimately into a phase zero where they're coming to the table again, feeling much more confident, much more self-aware, as well as much more willing to ask questions and be a part of the team as opposed to simply take my order for burgers and fries. And so that's when it really becomes powerful when we see a team gel in a way that people don't really know who works for who. And the ownership level is so high that they're telling my project manager, no, you're wrong. This is what we're going to do because this is where the team is. And my project manager goes, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for doing that. You're right. That's when we can see real success in this effort. Oh, that's awesome. I it's I love that you I mean the deliberateness that you do this because I I feel like I've you know in our in our careers we can identify those projects that we've all been on where the team just gelled right and you don't it, but it, but in many ways because um, projects I've been on have not had this level of deliberateness with establishing this it's just kind of like luck essentially right it's like the right people that personality wise seem to click seem to be working but i i can identify those projects in my head where it's just been a strong team and so the idea of you actually having a method to make that because those are the projects that again run the smoothest we all have the you know warm and fuzzies about at the end because everybody was just working for the collective good of the project but i mean it's just such a powerful thing to make it a, a deliberate thing to ensure that and i'm you know i'm sure it's not 100 percent perfect but that that happens with more frequency than it might had you just left it up to to chance for a team to be like that. Absolutely. I, I can tell you, I've tried to do this sort of same thing outside of, of Banner. And sometimes it's met with skepticism from, from uh, you know, owners who are like, why are we doing this? And what's the value? Um, and, and I'm always asking for their trust and their patience because it takes time to um, establish culture and establish sort of a, an open dialogue and we've been able to do that successfully in banner projects. Uh, I remember just recently, I was, I was you know, a contractor was pushing towards the deadline. And I could see pretty clearly that he was struggling to meet the deadline, but was going to sort of commit to it no matter what. And I told him in another thing, I said, you know, if we're going to miss the deadline that we've stated, we should probably just say that. Um, and this is a lesson I learned from Kyle, where he said, you know, we don't want to celebrate um, the electrician who spent 80 hours a week for the last two weeks of the project to get it done on time, because that's that's not the kind of experience we want people to have, nor is that the thing that should be celebrated. Um, that's a lot of work for somebody, and they miss time with their, with their family, um, with, with other things that they need to be doing. Um, and so we work hard to try and make sure that that kind of intentional culture um, and intentional um, collaboration exists. We, we actually have created an onboarding document from previous projects where when new folks come on, we, we tell them like, this is this is the scope of the work. These are the key contacts you need to know. This is the phase we're at now. And, and in fact, this morning we had a meeting about, uh, we called it a project dashboard that we were going to send out to folks upstream um, so they could understand and, and get a monthly update on our project and our project progress. Um, so 
it, it takes some very intentional work, um, but it, it pays off. Yeah. Oh, you guys, I, this is awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing this stuff with us. This is super important because like I said, you know, success of our projects is so reliant on the success of the teams and the team interaction. So these are these are definitely things, and especially in these challenging times in the world we're in, it makes it even more challenging to develop this, the strength of this team. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to share this with all of us. Well, I appreciate the invite. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Juan, for, for allowing me to participate. It's been fun. Okay. Well, there is our seventh episode, lucky number seven in the bag hmm. and it's end of December. So I guess this closes out our, uh, our season for 2020. Jenny, what do we have in store for 2021? Well, Todd, um, I think we are going to take a little pause and regroup. Uh, we are planning to do a season two. So hopefully folks, that are listening will still want to listen listen to us a little bit more. We've got a couple of ideas we've been toying with. I think we are also, as you heard from the audio on this podcast, going to invest in some gaming headsets because apparently that's where we get the uh, highest sound quality that we need. So we're gonna, you know, get get some of our our ducks in a row with that. Get um uh, get episodes on the calendar so that we can hopefully do these with a little bit uh, more predictable frequency for folks that are listening, and then kick it into season two in twenty twenty one. Yeah, I mean, this has been a lot of fun for me personally, and I feel like we've found a way to share some stories about what's going on that's that's you know unique to an audio format. So it feels like a thing to keep doing. We're going to, um, you know, look for, dear listeners, look for a survey on BiscuitNet, you know, you know ain't going to happen this year, uh, sometime in January. Because um, <laughs> what we'd really love is some feedback about what what worked, what didn't work, what things we tried were enjoyable to listen to, and, and you know, and what, what weren't. So we can kind of sharpen this thing up. And uh, like Jenny said, we're going to come at it with a bit more precision and maybe a bit better resources and uh, see what we can accomplish in 2021. Yep. And so with that, let's officially close out 2020 and be done with it, wash our hands of it. And then <laughs> hopefully everybody will get excited for um, still some virtual working, but get excited for what 2021 uh, has in store for all of us. So Happy holidays, Todd. Uh, happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays to you as well. See you on the flip side.